Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. I ask you to turn this morning to the book of John, the Gospel of John. There are 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John a little bit later on in the Bible, but the Gospel of John, um, chapter 5. When you spend time in the Gospels, you find that Christ's ministry, everything he did was, had changing power. Jesus didn't come just to be a static figure. Jesus came to change the world, to change everything around. Um, his ministry changed the world forever, and that's kind of like a no-duh statement, isn't it? When you come to church, you hear about the fact that Jesus changed the world. I mean, we pivot our history on the person and the life of Jesus. B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Everything pivots on this person and what Jesus did. Everything points to Christ. And what I love to look at when I look at the Gospels is also how Jesus, on his quest to save the world and to set man right with God again, never got so caught up in the macro, the big picture of what he was doing, that he forgot to take care of the micro, the little details of his ministry. Namely, when you see Jesus and you think about the immense task that he had, you would think that he would look at things on a global scale and on a big picture scale, but not one person escaped the attention of Jesus Christ. Not one person, not one person, even the high and mighty and the lowest of the low, Jesus saw them, he paid attention to them, and he addressed them because he, they, we were his creation. They were his creation. Throughout the Gospels, everyone who met Christ was met with the opportunity to be changed by him, not just for a moment, but for good. And when you come to know Christ, and when you're changed by Jesus, it's not just a temporary change. It's not just a diet that you start on January 1st, and it's over by January 1st at noon, okay? It's a forever change. When Jesus changes you, he changes you completely, and he changes you eternally. We see evidences of that all throughout the Gospels. Zacchaeus. The tax collector that was changed from being a greedy extortioner and a tax collector to being a compassionate philanthropist with just one visit by Jesus Christ. The Samaritan woman was changed from being a victim who was abused by love, thinking that she could find fulfillment in the arms of man after man after man, only to be chewed up, spit out, and thrown away. She finds the perfect healing, saving love of a lifetime from Jesus Christ. The two disciples who were on the road back to Emmaus after Jesus was crucified and who thought that all hope was gone, who thought that everything that they had kind of put their stock into had just crumbled to the floor, were overjoyed by renewed confidence when they met the Savior and the resurrection power of Christ. We see Jesus give sight to the blind with some dirt and some spit and some faith. We saw Jesus raise the dead to life just by calling them out of the grave. And one time he didn't even need to be there. He just healed a guy's friend from the next town over. This is the power of the Lord that we worship this morning. This is the stability of the cornerstone that we sang about this morning. This is the goodness of the God that we sang about this morning as well. These stories we find in the Gospels all give us a good glimpse into the compassion of Christ, but it also gives us a glimpse into this cross-section that we call humanity and all the things that we're dealing with. I don't know about you, but how many of you carried issues with you today? We all got our issues, right? 
Some of you are so burdened down by your issues, you can't even admit them that you've got them because your issue is pride. No, I ain't got no problem. Yeah, you do. We all have a problem. Why? Because we're all human. And our brokenness points us to our need for Christ. So these stories that we see are not just stories that we tell kids in Sunday school. We see ourselves in Zacchaeus. We see ourselves in the Samaritan woman. We see ourselves in the blind man, in the dead man, in Lazarus. We see ourselves in that. At least we should. And I want us to see ourselves in the man that we look at today. Because here's the problem. Jesus' compassion is for us, is for us in our sinful state. He cares too much about us to leave us in our sinful state. See, he didn't just save me so I could enjoy sin without consequence. He saved me to pull me out from the pit of despair that sin had me trapped in. But sin will ultimately lead to the same destination. Sin doesn't all come in one package, neither do the consequences of sin. But sin will always lead us to the same destination as the book of Romans said, the wages of our sin is death. Sin will always kill us. And when it all boils down to it, sin, its effects, its actions, what we see the Savior dealing with each time he ministers to these people is he ministers to someone in the Gospels, including the man we see in our text today. He's dealing not just with their physical ailments, but he deals with, first and foremost, their spiritual ailment, which is sin, which has bound them up, which has held them in chains, which has held them in death. And he calls them the spiritual life. And I say this because, and it all sounds elementary. If you've been in church for any, any number of time, you know that Jesus is the life giver, but why don't we live like he is? Why don't we live like he is? So I want to look at John chapter 5, verse 1 through 18. I've titled the message this morning simply, What a Day at the Pool. Because anybody remember pools? They're getting ready to close because school's back in session, right? In verse number 1, John chapter, John chapter 5, after this, a Jewish festival or feast took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades or five porches. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And there's a parenthetical. If you have a Christian standard Bible like mine, there's a parenthetical verse, number four. If you look down into the footnotes of, of your Bible, it says, waiting for the moving of the water because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. Then the first one who got in the water was stirred up, recovered from whatever ailment he had. And in verse number five, it says, one man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well or do you want to be healed? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat or pick up your bed and walk. And instantly, circle that word instantly, if you mark in your Bible, you take notes, instantly the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath, and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. <laughs> I'm just going to let that sit there for a minute, all right? In verse 11, <laughs> it's like, no, don't walk, just get back on the bed, it's, wait till Monday. You know, it's just... Anyway, um, just find it funny. He replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk, they asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. And after this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. 
Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the, new, to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And therefore the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that you would be our preacher. You would shine the light on your truth. Lord, I've prepared to speak and I've prepared to bring a message, but it's yours. It's your word. So I pray that you would hinder me from saying anything that would hinder your word from going as you want it to go today. Help us to realize this morning that while the majority of us in the room or the majority of us that are listening to this message, we can walk and get in the pool anytime we want to. And a lot of times we use our ability to walk to walk away from you. Help us to remember that we are all spiritually that lame man with no help other than you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, summer is now officially over, right? Kids have gone back to school in Fayette County. They're going back in Scott County um, on uh, Wednesday, right? So Fayette County started school on Wednesday. So Tuesday, um, uh, Noelle and I decided to squeeze every last drop out of summer. So we went over to Southland Pool over here around the corner from the church. Get the pun. We squeezed every last drop out of summer. So we... Okay, never mind. Help me out there a little bit. Okay. Um, squeezed every last drop out of summer. We went over to the pool. It was the last day of operations for Southland Pool. And we stayed until the very final whistle of the summer blew, man. It was, it was something special, man. I felt so bad for Noelle because she was up on the diving board, actually getting ready to step on the diving board. She was the next one in line when that final whistle blew. And you could just see her face as the blue, is it blue? She's like, oh. She had planned this great, awesome dive, you know, because she learned to dive on the diving board this summer and everything, and so she was just enjoying it to the hilt, and then it's like, oh, and then reality sets in, school tomorrow. I won't get to dive off a diving board for another hundred and something thousand days and all that stuff, you know. But y'all remember the pool, right? There, there's a different, not all pools are created equal, right? You got private pools and like resort pools, and then you got the public pool, right? How many of you grew up in the public pool? Okay, right? How many of you were like, you know, born with a silver spoon in your mouth and you went to the clubhouse pool, right? You went to the, I'm not, I'm not mad at you. I'm just a little jealous, actually. Um, you know, but for the rest of us normal, you know, guys, we went to the public pool. You know the difference between public pools and private pools, right? The lifeguards blow the whistle every hour and you got to get out of the water. I don't know why they do that. I think it's just so they can sell more concessions or something like that. Or, you know, the parents, in case they're having too relaxing of a time over there reading their book, they have to remember they have children every 50 minutes or something because they come over, Mom, Mom, Dad, Dad, where's my drink? I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. I'm just, you know, I don't know what it is about swimming that makes a person feel like they've, they've you know, been malnourished their whole life. But they have to have snacks when they get out. And so you all remember this, especially now go back and be a kid when that whistle blew, right? You remember what happened? There's this collective moan of like depression that sweeps across the pool, right? Oh, and kids, you never see them move slower than when they're moving towards the ladder to get out of the pool at break time. You know, there's this one kid that I used to go to the pool with. He's like, if I go slow enough, I'll still be in the water when the whistle blows that we can get back in. You know, it was just awful. And those 10 minutes seemed to be an eternity, right? And what's really fun is watching the kids when that whistle blows to get back in. 
It's like a race, but you know they're not allowed to run or they'll blow the whistle and make them sit longer. So they're like doing this, you know, they're like walking really fast to get to the water and stuff. And it's like the first one in the pool is going to get some magical reward for jumping in the pool and being in the water first, right? You did it. You know you did it. You know your kids do it and you think they're ridiculous, but they inherited that business from you is what they did. I mean, I'm telling you, the whistle blows, nachos flying in the air, M&Ms flying in people's eyes because kids are just like bolting back to the water like they're, like they're, you know, like mermaids about to dry out or something like that. I don't know what it is. They think there's some reward for getting in the water first, and you, there isn't. You just get to get in the water. It's just, you know, it's nice. But this pool was a little bit different that we're talking about today. This was a public pool situation. The pool of Bethesda was a pool that was there that was more for like people who were handicapped, the outcasts of society really. And they believed that there was another pool that was adjacent to it that most everybody else used. And when you think about pool, it's not like, you know, put on your swimsuit and go to the pool type of thing. It was a little bit of a different situation at that time. But there was a different one for everybody else. And then there was one for those who were less desirable, who they didn't want to look at and see and things like that. So this is the scene that is set for where we are today. This pool, though, even though not a whole lot of people went to it, it was a special pool. Because we're introduced to this lame person who spent all his time at the pool but never had any hope of ever being the first one in the water. We know about this pool that there would be an angel that would come or a messenger of God that would stir up the waters. And when he would stir up the waters, the first one that got into the pool would be healed of whatever illness and whatever sickness and whatever disease they had. And so you would find all of these people, blind, lame, paralyzed, lepers, all of these people there hoping to be the first one in the water so their life could be changed and their, their illness could be healed. And so this man had been there, and the Bible said he had been there for a long time, and he had been paralyzed for 38 years. And we don't exactly know what caused this man's paralysis, but we're led to believe that it wasn't something he was born with, because Jesus later on says, you don't want something worse happening to you. Don't sin again. We're led to believe that what happened to him was something that came about maybe from a bad choice that he had made. Maybe it was some sort of accident. Maybe it was some sort of fight that he got in that ended up maiming him. But we know that this was not his choice, but it was something that was a consequence to his life. And so for 38 years, he's sitting by this pool, and he has no hope of being helped. Two important things to understand about this particular miracle as well that Jesus is going to perform is, this is going to be the first public miracle that Jesus performs. He had turned water to wine in the book of John, and he had also, by this time, also helped the nobleman's son uh, to be healed from, from miles away. But the only people who knew about that were the people that were there, that saw it. This one was going to be something that was more public. And fame was going to spread through because it would have been done in front of people that were, had something to do with the law and something to do with uh, city officials and all of those types of things. Word was going to spread once he did this. So what we see in this count is amazing, not just because of his miraculous nature, but because it's such a glimpse into the compassionate, redeeming, merciful, and gracious nature of the Savior. Here's a man who, what most people would say, probably deserved what he got. Most people probably knew why he had been maimed, and it probably wasn't a good, a good thing. Here's Jesus who walked into a pool where the undesirables were, and he finds the guy that nobody wants to help. 
And all I have to say to that is, isn't that our Savior? Isn't that Jesus? And there's some of you right now, you think, or you're wrestling with the fact, Jesus can't save me. Jesus wouldn't forgive me. You have no idea what I've done. I don't need to know. Jesus already knows. He knew when he was on the cross. And if he can raise a lame man that nobody else cares about, why can't he change you too? We get a, a, an idea of his compassion, and it also shows us his wide reach. Because we see in Scripture how he can reach out to a nobleman, to an official, how he can change water to wine at a wedding, how he can speak to Pharisees, and how he can speak to all of these people, and how he can help them. But then he helps someone that nobody else would care about. I want to look at a few life-changing facts from this story that we can apply to our lives this morning. Because while we may not consider ourselves the lame man at the pool, we are the lame man at the pool. Every one of us are. And we can see something important here. So the first thing we have to understand about this story and what it teaches us is that no one is too far outside the reach of Jesus' grace. There is no man, woman, boy, or girl that is too far outside the reach of the grace of Jesus Christ. We find this... In, now. In verse number two, we see this. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there's a pool that is called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Well, why is that? Why is that verse important? It tells us, John tells us that that was the name of the, that was the, name of the pool in Aramaic. Well, what they mostly spoke at that point was, was Hebrew, especially in Jerusalem. And so when you translated that name Bethesda into Hebrew and into Greek and into all of these different languages, it would end up providing different meanings. The different spellings would bring different meanings. So there were three different meanings of the pool of Bethesda that you see, uh, depending on what language you adopt and spell it in. Some say that Bethesda means the house of mercy. And I think that applies to this man right here, the house of mercy, not getting the bad that I deserve, but also it means the house of grace, if you spell it another way. It means getting what I don't deserve. And it's funny how God's grace and his mercy always go hand in hand, right? It's always hand in glove. I didn't get the bad I did deserve, and I got way more than I did deserve, way more good than I did deserve. That's salvation. That's the mercy and grace of our God. Others say that it means the place of two outpourings. And this is kind of, it kind of alludes to the fact that there was one pool over here and one pool over here. And if you were a healthy person and kind of a desirable person, you went here. And if you were undesirable, you went to the pool at Bethesda. It was adjacent to another pool at the time. The pool of Bethesda was located in the northeast corner of the old city, right in the shadow of the temple, right next to the sheep gate, which there's a lot of significance to that, but we won't have a whole lot of time to get into that. But the pool of Bethesda was for the undesirable. I can't say this enough. You didn't go to Bethesda pool unless you had a need. And you didn't go to Bethesda pool unless it was your last option. Because there was some sort of like almost, you know, mystic sense about all of this. That the waters would be stirred and whoever got into it. And you never knew when it was going to happen and all of these different things. Look at verse number three of our text. Within this lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So how many people were at this pool? There were a lot of people at this pool. This reminds us of a couple of things. There's a lot of people in this world who need hope. A lot of people in this world that are blind and lame and spiritually maimed, and they need Jesus Christ. 
So you can probably imagine that the pool that was adjacent to Bethesda pool was a whole lot nicer. You know, it was for the, the country club vibe where you could go and have a cabana boy bring you a Coke and something from the grill right at your lounge chair, you know. There's probably some nice island music playing off, into the, uh, off in the background, and there's this huge fence, and it's playing, and the music's playing a little bit loud because it's trying to drown out the cries and the suffering from just across the, the fence on the other side, and you wanted to pretend that that didn't exist. Bethesda pool wasn't something, wasn't like a vacation spot. It wasn't a place that you wanted it to end up at. This man was hopeless. This man had no help in his life. And imagine this guy and his friends at the pool. They're blind, they're lame, they're paralyzed, they're cast out by society, they're sequestered away from all of the desirables, so they don't ruin the party that everybody else wants to have. The man even said that he was all alone and he was helpless and he had no friends or family to help him get into the pool. And I want you to think about this for a minute. This man that Jesus talks to had no one in his life. We're led to believe that he probably had people, but over his life, maybe his decision or maybe whatever had happened with him, had, everybody had kind of left him. Maybe he had pushed everyone away or maybe they had given up on him or something like that. It's different from the other paralyzed man that four friends are willing to carry them through the city streets, take them up on the roof of a house, cut a hole in the roof, and lower them down to Jesus that cared about him that much. It's a whole lot different. It's a whole lot more hopeless feeling for this guy. He had no one. He said, no one will put me in the pool when it happens. And even though everyone else was willing to turn and look the other way in disgust or discomfort at the man's predicament, somebody notices him. And it's not just somebody. It is the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus still noticed him. Jesus looked directly at him and approached him and considered his condition. And I believe, I believe, because of other evidences in the scripture, especially like when he went to the Samaritan woman and he says, I had a need to go through Samaria. When everybody else looked for ways to get around Samaria, Jesus went straight there because there was a woman who needed him. I believe Jesus went straight to the pool because he knew that man was there and needed him and he was his only hope. So what do I get from this? What do we understand from this? That there is no one that is too far outside the reach of Jesus' grace. And church, we have to understand that in 2021, there are a lot of lame men around our pool of life and we can't turn our backs. We can't turn our eyes. We can't just put up a fence and we can't just play the music loud enough so we don't hear their cries. We have to hear their cries. We have to see their eyes and we have to meet them with the need that they have and that need is Jesus Christ. To turn our eyes away is not something that Christ would lead us to do. This is just a side note to the message, but I think that Jesus' actions are mentioned here to challenge us as followers who are supposed to act and care like him. Are we noticing the rest of the, wor the, rest of the people that the rest of the world just seems to ignore? Would we take the time to help this man? Obviously, we can't heal him physically, but we can help him spiritually. Would we try to help him in his condition? The second thing that we see from this passage is that real change can only come from Jesus Christ. True change, the change that we really need, can only come from him. You see, this man had realized that he couldn't find healing on his own. And you know what he had come to expect? I won't find healing. This is what a lot of people today seem to think. I can't find healing on my own, so therefore there is no healing available. This is why we live in a culture that seems to be more victimized than victorious, right? 
We talk about all the things that are against us. And I'm not saying that we can't, that we just ignore our problems and we ignore our things and we ignore our issues. What I'm saying is we have to understand that yes, we are too weak to overcome the mountains in front of us, but that's why Jesus Christ says a tiny seed of mustard and you will be able to move mountains. Did you catch how I misquoted that? Jesus said, I will make you to move mountains. And say you'd be able to. He said, I will help you. I will be the power as you move the mountain. That's what he said. This man couldn't find healing on his own. As you can imagine, the possibility of healing kept the lame and the halt, the impotent and the blind around that pool 24-7 because it wasn't like the angel worked on a 50-minute schedule like all the lifeguards at the public pool. The Bible said it would come from time to time. They didn't know when. We didn't know why. We had no idea how often it happened, so these people were scared to leave the pool because their chance for change might happen while they're away. We're not sure how often that angel would visit, so they were at the mercy of waiting for their ship to come in. And there are so many people, probably you today, that are at the mercy of just waiting for things to get better, just waiting for that magic moment when everything's going to change. That moment has already happened. It happened 2,000 years ago on the cross at Calvary. And it happened 2,000 years ago minus three days at the empty tomb. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, broke the bonds of sin and death for us. Whatever the case, this man had the odds stacked against him. He was paralyzed and no matter how close he sat to the pool, unless somebody helped him, he wasn't going anywhere. So when Jesus comes to the pool, he sees the man lying on his mat like he has been for the past 38 years. And he looks at him, and in verse number 6, if you look with me, it says, when Jesus saw him lying there and he realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? <laughs> no, Sherlock, I'm just here because I enjoy the scenery. Yes, I want to get well. He already knew the man wanted to get well because Jesus knows us already. In other words, do you think today's your lucky day? And the man gives Jesus two quick reasons while he'll never be the first in the water. Look at verse number seven. Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone always goes down ahead of me. So here's two reasons. Nobody's there to help me. I'm alone. And number two, someone always beats me to it. I'm not strong enough. Does that describe how you feel right now? I'm all alone, and I can't overcome what's ahead of me. Everybody else has always got ahead, uh, got, seemed to have a leg up. I'm all alone, and I got nobody to help. He'd given in to the hopelessness of his state. You get the idea that he wasn't a rookie at the pool. This wasn't his first season pass. Those other lame guys had some friends to help him in the water, but this man had no one. He was all alone. So if you didn't really already feel bad for the guy not being able to walk, now we see that he has no one in the world who could help him or care for him. So it's here that we begin to get an idea as to why it was this man that Jesus went to. You want to know why Jesus went to this man? Because Jesus specializes in lost causes. When all hope seems to be gone, Jesus shows up. When all hope seems to be gone, that's when Jesus shows up. And it's when Jesus shows up, we find out he's been there all the time. See, we'll never find peace in our own strength or someone other than Christ. Because regardless if, those pe if he had people to help him too, the greatest help walked through the door when Jesus came there. 
This man had two really good excuses for why this day or any other day for that matter would not be his day to be healed. He was alone and he had no strength. And when it comes to our spiritual condition, without Christ, that defines us. Without Christ, we're all alone. And without Christ, we have no strength over sin, over death. We are in the same position this lame man was at that pool. Like I said, we're the lame man. We are him. If it were not for Jesus. And no one else is going to be able to help us either. And you may be thinking, you know what? I'm doing fine without Jesus. I feel good today. I don't feel lame at all. Matter of fact, I feel better than a lot of Christians I know. Well, <laughs> here's one thing. Don't, don't pin Jesus on his followers. Don't expect Jesus to act like his followers. We should expect his followers to act like Jesus. So we see the fact that we are like this man. The third thing that we see is the grace of God never takes a day off. No one's beyond the reach. And it never takes a day off. This miracle took place during a Jewish feast. Now, Jewish feasts at that time were times when you packed up the family caravan. <laughs> Get the caravan because of camels. All right, anyway. You, I didn't choose the Odyssey or the Sienna. It was the caravan. Anyway, you love the puns, don't you? No, okay. Anyway, you don't pack up the family caravan and you, go, and you go to the holy city of Jerusalem. You make pilgrimages to be there. There were certain feasts and festivals where you had to be in the city. So the city was packed with people. There were new people at the pool that were from far away who had heard about this and they're coming for all of that as well. The grace of God never takes a day off. What we know is that there's a feast. We don't know which one it is. It could have been the Feast of Tabernacles or it could have been the Feast of Weeks. But we know that Jesus came back to Jerusalem from Galilee to observe the feast. Feasts were holy times in Jewish culture. Not only was it a busy time, but it was a holy time. It was a time when you personally thought about your position before God. A lot of people didn't think a whole lot about other people at that time. They were thinking about themselves. So you had a lot of people that were not going to put eyes on this pool because they're thinking about themselves and what they needed to do for their own purity before God. But Jesus is different. He doesn't take days off. He doesn't have to be concerned with where his spiritual condition is because he's already covered. He's the Lord. So he doesn't take days off. He has no weaknesses. He's not spiritually lame. He's not spiritually dead. So he doesn't have to take the day off. So we have one thing that God could have taken the day off, but he didn't. It was a feast. It was a time of the festival. He could have taken a day off, and according to the law, should have taken the day off because it was also on the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day in those times, and we looked at this during our Ten Commandments series a few months ago, the Sabbath day was a day that you did nothing, or you could get in some real trouble. And so Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath. Look at verse number eight. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. And instantly the man got well. Get up, Jesus told him. And he got well. And it says this. Right after it says he started to walk. And the day was the Sabbath. Why do you think John puts that in there? Because especially to the Jewish reader, especially in the Jewish culture to read that, knows that Jesus, according to the law, did a no-no. 
So did Jesus sin here? No. Remember, Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. The whole point of the Sabbath was to stop and focus upon God and his goodness and his power. And here is God in the flesh showing his power right there. What better way to spend the Sabbath as God than showing your power to the people that can't move? But all of a sudden, it's the Sabbath. And guess what? Some people didn't like it. We've never done it that way before. You didn't follow the proper protocol. You didn't run it through committee. You didn't get licensed from the scribes and the Pharisees to do this. When Jesus healed this man, two Sabbath laws were broken. The man was in trouble because he carried his mat after being healed. Could you imagine that on the Sabbath, you shouldn't have to clean up after yourself? Teenagers love the Sabbath. Right? Husbands love the Sabbath too, right? All right? And then the second thing was Jesus was in trouble because he healed the man on the Sabbath. But what we learned from this is that Jesus keeps the same schedule as the Father. And God doesn't take days off. So, but hold on. He rested on the Sabbath day. Yeah, he rested to show us the importance and what we need to focus on his power and on his glory. What, Jesus, what God did on the Sabbath when he rested was he stood back and he noticed everything that he had built. And he looked and he admired his glory. That's what the Sabbath is for for us. We are to step back and take our eyes off of everything and recenter ourselves on God's power, his glory, his might, his goodness. That's what we're supposed to be doing when we worship him. Jesus keeps the same schedule as God the Father. Look at verse number 17. Jesus responded to them, the Pharisees who came in and said, you're not supposed to be carrying your mat. You're not supposed to be healing on the Sabbath. This is wrong. This is blasphemy. And here's what Jesus says. My Father is still working. Now, somebody here needed that. That's why you're here today. You needed to hear that the Father is still working. Because you think that he's given up. He hasn't. He's still working. World spinning out of control, don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, COVID on the rise again, earthquakes in Haiti. What's God doing? I'll tell you what he's doing right here, exactly what Jesus said. He's still working. And here's what Jesus says, and I'm working also. I am working also. The Sabbath day was commanded by God the Father to keep it holy, to set it apart, and turn your attention to him. I guarantee you that when that man was healed, attention turned to Jesus. It did. Immediately that man wanted to see Jesus, but he'd walked away. Later on, Jesus comes up to him and says, so see that you're well, and all those types of things. And he realized who it was, but everybody wanted to know, what made you walk? You're not supposed to walk. You're supposed to be right down there. Get back in your place. That's what legalism tells us to do. Jesus says, get up and walk in the power of God. Legalism says, know your place, stay in your place. Jesus said, I'll heal you when you have need. Legalism says, we'll only see you healed if you follow the rules. If you can't walk by the rules, then you shouldn't walk. This work pointed to the power and the majesty and the holiness of Christ, which was the whole point and the focus of the Sabbath to begin with. See, we're all blessed for this fact. We're all blessed for the fact that God doesn't take a day off. There's a lot of people who take days off around us, right? And listen, I'm, we all need Sabbath. We all need Sabbath. I'm learning about how to take Sabbath in my life. Rest for my body. 
Because if I don't, I'll burn out, right? We all would do better if we took a Sabbath, a proper Sabbath, right? But we, you ever, you ever had your AC go out? Anybody ever had that? Well, AC goes out at two times, when it's the hottest and on the weekend, doesn't it? Yeah. Right? Why does it go out when it's the hottest? Because it's working harder and it's going to make you miserable the most. And because that's the way the universe is bent towards you. And then number two, it goes out on the weekend because it costs more to get it fixed on the weekend. Yeah. Right? I'm thankful that I serve a God whose rate is the same every day of the week. Amen. Every day. God doesn't take a day off. He'll save people on Monday. He'll save them on Tuesday, Wednesday. He'll save them in the middle of the night. He'll, you guess, what he'll, guess what else? He'll save them even if they're not in a church building. I've heard tell of people saying they got saved in places Christians wouldn't even dare to go. That's because God never takes a day off. God never takes a day off and we should be thankful for the fact that he never takes a day off. And when we take our days off, we can rest in the fact that he's got it all. He's got it. We got to move or we're going to not finish here. Psalm chapter 46, verse 1, you need to hear this. God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always, always found in times of trouble. Always. You offer a prayer of repentance or the prayer of salvation, you'll never receive a recording letting you know that Jesus is out of the office until Monday and he'll get back with you between the hours of 9 and 5 Eastern Standard Time. Because we all know Jesus works according to, you know, American time, right? He doesn't do that. He's always on call. Lastly, as we move to our invitation, Christ's grace will break your bondage. Christ's grace will break our bondage. You see, the weight of sin is pictured by the crowd at the pool. It said there was a lot, there was a great multitude of impotent folk at the pool. Why? Because there's a great multitude of impotent folk. The weight of sin bears down on us all around. Every one of us, spiritually speaking, is dead until we come to know Jesus Christ. We are all gathered around that pool. Now imagine you're one of these people because spiritually speaking, you are. I am. We all are. The weight of sin presses down on all of us. That's why there is sickness. That's why there is death because the wages of sin is death. And as I mentioned at the beginning <clears throat> of our message today, we will suffer the consequences and they all come in different packages, but they all come. There will be consequences for that sin. The man had become hopeless under the weight of that sin for 38 years. 38 years this man had been living in a disabled way. And we don't know exactly why he was lame, but we're led to believe it was because of a choice that he had made that got him there. It wasn't a condition that he had been born with because most of the time when it's something that pers a person was born with, it notes it in scripture that he was born with that condition. It may very well be that his paralysis was a condition of a sin that he had committed. And maybe that describes you this morning. Maybe you're there and you're thinking, I don't deserve any hope. I don't deserve anything. And you're mad at yourself. Maybe you're mad at God because you think that you've been given a raw deal. What matters is that you're at the pool. And what matters is the only one that's going to heal you is Jesus. 
The blindness of legalism is also pictured by the Pharisees here. You see, we're also, we're covered by the condemnation of sin and death, but then also thinking that I can work my way out of the pit by just being a better person. And that's what the Pharisees were trying to do. And they were mad that the man had carried the mat. They were mad that, the, that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And in verse number 10, it says, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath and the law prohibits you from picking up your mat. I want you just to think for a second. You're the man who's been healed. You haven't walked in 38 years, and all of a sudden you're standing there. And Jesus says, pick up your mat. I don't know about you, but the man who told me to stand up, and all of a sudden I could, if he tells me to pick up my mat, I'm going to do what he says. But then there's these people over here saying, but the law says you shouldn't be doing that. Be looking at him like, I think I'm going to go with the guy who healed me. I think I'm going to go with that. And so all of a sudden you see this man that has got a brand new life. His life has been changed. All of a sudden he can go to work again. He can, he can, he can go build a house. He can do all kinds. Of, he can go to the store now for himself. He can grow things for himself. He can help people into the pool now if he wants to. Man, there's a whole message on that one right there. Look at verse number 16 through 18. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jews responded to them. Jesus responded to them, my father's still working and I'm working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Here's the thing. If you, if you can make a man walk, you've yet to prove that you're not the son of God. But these guys are like, no, you're not playing by our rules, so therefore you must be outside outside of normal. This is where the tides begin to turn on Christ. Three miracles in and already, already the religious elite that trust in themselves more than God are offended. Catch that. A lot of times we get offended at what God's doing because it offends our efforts more than it offends other people for the righteousness of what's going on. I don't know how else to word that. Jesus said, I'll make this man walk by my grace and my power. Legalism says if this man can't walk by our rules, then he shouldn't walk. As we close this morning, I want you to see one more thing, and this is what I want to close on. We've talked a lot about this man and his legs that couldn't work, but I want you to know this. God cares way more about your soul than he cares about your legs. Way more about your soul than he does about your legs. The man comes back in verses 13 through 14. Or Jesus comes back to the man and sees him and finds him and he says, look. He says, are you glad that you can walk again? And the guy's like, yeah. And he says, then go and sin no more. Because you don't want something worse to happen. Why did Jesus heal this man? Because he needed to walk. And he needed to know the power of God in his life. But ultimately what he healed in this man was his sin. Ultimately, what we need is not a bigger bank account, is not a better situation. It may not even be physical healing. Ultimately, what we need is the Spirit of God to heal us of our spiritual illness. And I don't know what form that's taking right now in your life, but it's going to take form in some way, shape, or form. And God is the only one who can deal with that. Thank you for listening today. 
At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.